0: Do we have any questions or thoughts from last week that we have to settle before we go forward?
1: So my question is um, uh, Bhishma and Amba. So Bhishma is the ego and Amba has this obsession Mm -hmm. about destroying him because of what he did to her. What does she represent and what's that whole dynamic all about?
0: Um, That's a good question. Actually, I never said it, but I do have it written down here. Let me just see if I can find it easily. I sort of got a little Amba. She represents, no, actually, Amba doesn't have a characteristic. That's why I didn't say it. They never really tell you. I think. Uh, I just think it's such a great part of the story. Yeah, I was wondering if it was just a good story
1: or if it actually like, it has, symbolized something. Well, it you has. Know that.
0: Uh, what, what it plays out is it, it illustrates a whole lot of different points. It illustrates um, the respect given to women and their feelings, it illustrates the fact that human love and human attachment was very important, that uh, Vichitra would not take her as his wife because her heart was given to another. It indicates Salva's um, stubborn sense of honor that Bhishma had defeated him and he wasn't going to take the from the one who had defeated him. It uh, talks about the fact that Bhishma actually took her hand and once he took her hand, that was a commitment to her and so Bhishma owed her something. You know, there's just sort of a lot of uh, moral and ethical values that all get to play out. The other side of this story, which I, I really, really like, is that it's so not black and white. You know, it's, it's just all these cross currents which, if you recall, is a lot how real life actually is. We, and one of the problems that we have in our spiritual life, which is no small thing, is that we're always trying to make it black and white. Those people are wrong and I'm right. This is how I'm supposed to behave. What are the rules? Someone wrote me once essentially asking, can't you just give me the rules? You know, why do you have to just keep telling me I have to have my own intuition? I want the rules. And there are certain rules because, of course, Bhishma has this powerful sense of honor that he's going to hold to. You see honor all the way through this. Um, but nonetheless, it, it, there's lots of shades of gray. You know, even her, her grandfather, Amba's grandfather, goes to Bhargava and tries to get Bhargava to defeat. Bhishma, and force him to do the honorable thing, and Bhishma fights his own guru. He's willing to do battle with his own guru rather than break his vow. Wow, it's just amazing to contemplate it all. And she's the cause of all of that. So that's sufficient cause. And then, of course, there's this other reality to the way the Indian scriptures are, is that they also teach you how to be evil sometimes. <laughs> I mean, they teach you how to get uh, desires fulfilled, even when those desires are a little questionable. And I, um, Purushottama actually talks about this in the Yuga's book, talking about how coming down from a higher age, people just knew how to have power. And when their own consciousness began to darken, they still knew how to have power. Um, But it's also, the answer that Swamiji once gave was, well, that's what people want, so at least they're thinking in terms of going to the scriptures, they're thinking in terms of, of propitiating the gods, they're at least in relationship to a higher power, even if they're using that power improperly. And again, once again, it's the complexity of human life that, as Master said, one of the reasons that our karma doesn't come back on us instantaneously, is because of what he called the thwarting cross-currents of ego. So even though you may have done something that would, would, would necessarily generate a response from the universe, and we think, I mean, I, I, this has been an issue in my own life, just, you know, I, why didn't you tell me? And people can't always tell you, because you're putting out so much energy, that maybe they tried to tell you, but you were putting out so much energy you didn't hear it. Or they won't even bother because you're putting out so much energy it's just not worth it to them to struggle against you. And it's the same, you can have a powerful outgoing force and just it you outrun your karma, but sooner or later it, it catches up with you now. Why was I saying that? Let me think about it for a minute. Oh, right. So that... Uh, you know, even if somebody's intention is evil, they may still have the capacity to do such intense tapasya that the God gives them a boon. And later on, in other places, and now it's a little unclear to me whether it's in the Ramayana or in the Mahabharata. But um, when you know some good person was exiled, which you know, the curses of the rishis, the good people getting exiled, the kings needing sons, everybody dying at the end—these are the themes of all the epics. Um, one of the rishis says, to reassure the hero, you know, good people have bad periods and bad people have good periods. You know, it's just nothing is black and white. That's why this, these epics have sustained the extremely subtle, subtle culture of India for all these centuries, because they have it in them to do it. It's, 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 uh, it's marvelous that way. Okay, fair enough. Any other questions? Yes.
1: actually not a question, but I remember reading a book by Gyandev Mekad on the Mahabharata uh-huh. and uh, uh, he was, he was uh, I think he had described Amba or Shikandi as, as also the will to uplift which is same as Arjuna and it made a lot of sense I'm to sorry, me I'm sorry,
0: I couldn't, pull the microphone just a little away the other way, the <sighs> I couldn't quite hear you he described what is what?
1: Uh, he, he equates Shikandi or Amba uh-huh. to the will, will to uplift which is same as Arjuna
0: uh, which, With the will to uplift?
1: Yeah, okay. and it somehow made sense to me because uh-huh. uh, on the day of the battle when Bhishma is killed, I don't want to break the suspense for those who are hearing it. for No, no I time.
0: already said that. Yeah, she, <laughs> she, she gets him in the end. Yeah, but. she she's riding <laughs> the
1: same chariot as Arjuna and uh-huh. he was the one who breaks the barriers and suddenly it's her standing instead of in Arjuna's place. So yeah. somehow it made sense to me the way it, they, that he it was explained drawn. Yeah.
0: Okay, that works. works for me. All right. Anything else that needs to be said? Wants to be said? Okay. You may recall we left the story at the end of the last episode uh, with uh, Kunti had uh, used the boon that the Gr- Rishi had given her and she'd given birth to the son who was called Karna at that point and she put him on the river. Many of you asked, pointed out how many stories involve some poor maiden putting the baby on the river. Um, As I said, there weren't a lot of options probably, so it was just the way they had to do it. Or it's like the curse of the Rishi and everyone having to die at the end. There's just certain archetypal themes here. Okay, so now what happens is that Pandu is in charge of the kingdom and he has taken Kunti as his wife and Madri as his wife. And this is a very good period. And Bhishma begins to think that he's, um, he's actually going to get a little break here. That the kingdom is in safe hands, and that maybe he's just not going to have to take care of it um, for the rest of his life. And Pandu is a very good warrior, and so the kingdom becomes more powerful, and his brother, Dhritarashtra, being blind, is not able to be in charge of the kingdom, and it's, it's Pandu's to run, and everything looks like it's really going to happen well. And then, as the kings do, they go out into the forest to hunt, and so Pandu and his wives went out into the forest, just to enjoy themselves in the natural surroundings. And they were hunting. Now, unbeknownst to Pandu, there was Arishi and his wife, and they had the rather peculiar desire that they wanted to sport as animals in the forest. And so they turned themselves into deer so that they could enjoy the pleasures of coupling as a man and a woman, but in an animal form. It's a peculiar story, but you know they have to <laughs> facilitate. I'm sure somebody has a long explanation for it, but I just say it's a peculiar story and certain things work. So what happens is that Pandu doesn't realize that, that, that the, man, the male and female deer are coupling at that moment. And because the deer's attention is distracted, he shoots an arrow and he kills the, the wife. And as soon as the wife and the form of the deer you know, falls down and begins to die, both of them assume their human form again. And the Rishi is outraged at Pandu because this is totally against the laws of chivalry which apply to animals as well as to men. You know, This is a very unsportsman moment in which to take advantage of the animal and to kill him, even if you're killing him for food. So the Rishi curses King Pandu and he says to him, If you ever embrace your wife with passion again in that instant, just as my wife was killed, you will die. So all of a sudden, everything was going really well. (laughs) But Arishi steps into the picture, and now Pandu has a very difficult problem. Um, Of course, now he has to learn to control his life energy, which prior to this was never really a question in his life. So he decides that he has to give up his life in the palace and he goes out with his two wives to live in the forest. So just when Bhishma was thinking that he was going to be able to put this responsibility down, it all comes back to him. So they actually found a way to live in the forest together, Pandu and his two wives. There's lots of rishis and their ashrams and It's it's not an unpleasant way to live, and he had nobly accepted that these were the conditions of life that were placed upon him. And, you know, he's a kingly man, and it wasn't uh, so impossible for him to just say, this is fate, this is what I'll do. But he had a very serious problem, because this curse was laid upon him before he had fathered any sons. And this is the burning ambition of every king, is to, to have an heir that can follow in his footsteps as king. And even though he's having to live out in the forest, he's still king, and that's still pressure upon him. So he tries to persuade his wives to invite a rishi to give them children, pointing out that this is how he himself came into the world, and it's a time-honored family tradition. (laughs) But neither of his wives is inspired um, to follow through in this way. But he becomes more and more discontent and more and more miserable. And finally, Kunti decides that, well, she has this secret that she has kept all these years. She's never told anyone um, about the the incantation that was given to her, and she's certainly never told anyone that she's actually used it. But finally, she decides to tell Pandu because she can't bear his misery anymore. And of course, he's overjoyed because now he, he won't be killed by the Rishi, but they can still have sons. So they... Um, decide that they would love to have a son by the Lord of Dharma, who is also, as it happens, the Lord of Death, Lord Yama. And, the, and so they invoke the Lord of Dharma, and Kunti gives birth to the first of the Pandava brothers, whose name is Yudhishthira. And Yudhishthira, of course, being the son of Dharma, is the most righteous. He's not only the eldest, and therefore the heir, but he's also the most righteous human being there can be. So after a year. Uh, Pandu says one son is like having no sons because there's no security. They also sometimes say two sons is like having no sons or three sons or four sons because they seem to have an unlimited desire. So this time she summons the god of the wind, Vayu. And so they give birth to the second son and this son is called Bhima. And when he's born they say this son will be the most powerful warrior on earth and he also has the the, the, the huge heart, the great loving nature and the expansive nature, the power of the wind that moves through what we're working with here, which is the fourth chakra, because each of these represents a chakra. But Pandu is still not satisfied, so he persuades Kunti to use the incantation one more time, and this time they appeal to Indra, who is the lord of the heavens and the god of the rain. And from Indra comes Arjuna. And Arjuna is the prince of self-control, and he, they declare that, you know, this son is going to bring... uh, Pandu's name will live forever because of the power of of Arjuna. Now, Pandu is still not satisfied and he tries to persuade Kunti that she should use the incantation one more time, but she quotes what Vyasa had quoted, he said, desperate measures are allowed three times, but not more. (laughs) I find that a very interesting little aphorism, every so often I think desperate measures are allowed three times, where you sort of Break the rules. You can do it in extreme circumstances, but you can't make a habit of it. But since Pandu is still miserable, and he also says to her, "Look, now you are the mother of sons, but what about your poor sister, wife Madri?" So he persuades her, he persuades Kunti to teach the incantation to Madri, and then she pe- appeals to the gods, who are called the Ashwin twins, and she gives birth to the twins, Nakula and Sahadev. So now we have all five of the Pandavas. They've all uh, been born. And on the same day that Bhima was born, the first of Dhritarashtra's sons was born, and that son was called Duryodhana. Okay, and I'll speak a little bit more about Duryodhana in a moment, but Yudhishthira is now the eldest, and Bhima and Duryodhana, who become absolute sworn enemies in the end, are born on the same day. The power of karma brings them right in, and they have to oppose each other. Now, each of the Pandavas represents a different chakra, and this becomes sort of part of when we're we're talking um, in this story and also when we're talking about the Gita and other parts, the, the the character of each of each, especially Arjuna and his position in the third chakra becomes a very important image for understanding the spiritual path. Yudhisthira represents the highest, the throat chakra. We're talking about the five chakras from the throat chakra to the base of the spine, because Krishna is the spiritual eye. But the the chakras that participate in human life and define our relationship to this world, by the time we are dealing with Krishna consciousness, with the spiritual eye, we're no longer working um, in the everyday world. So the five Pandavas participate, and they're guided by Krishna, but it's the Pandavas who have to pick up the weapons and fight. Krishna only inspires them. He doesn't himself pick up a weapon. So often when we're teaching about the chakras, it's really the five chakras, from the throat chakra to the base of the spine, that we use to understand ourselves um, in, in a, uh, an outward expression way, uh, how we live in this world. So Yudhisthira, um, what his name means and who he represents is calmness in psychological battles. And the whole... Uh, battlefield of Kurukshetra, which we're going to go into eventually before the story is finished, is a huge battleground between the upward moving forces and the downward pulling forces. Duryodhana, the core of a king, represents the king. master calls him king material desire, he calls him. And the five Pandavas oppose that downward moving energy, and these are the, the tools they bring to bear. Yudhisthira is calm in the midst of battle psychological battle, personal battle. He, he's always in Dharma, and he's always centered in himself. Nothing can move him off of that. And that's the first, you know, that's the warrior, warrior force that we need. Bhima is, is the power of vitality. He's the power of the wind. And, of course, the power of the wind represents the breath. And the breath is the, the key to our uh, connectedness, both to the physical world and to the spirit world, is when we are teaching the hong Sau meditation, as you remember, we talk about how by following the breath is the, the link. It's between a, a, a power that's under our control and a power that's beyond our control. And the breath is the transition point between the, the subtle energy of life force and our ability to live in our physical bodies. A, a baby's incarnation begins astrologically, you know, not when the head crests out of the mother's body, but when the baby takes its first breath. Because until that baby takes its first breath, it hasn't necessarily committed itself to this incarnation. And Master's marvelous explanation of why the baby cries is not because of the pain of its lungs filling. He says it's because of the realization Oh my gosh, I'm here again. (laughs) How did I get here? Remember the seven of the eight vasus got to be thrown into the river immediately. They just got here and they got out of here really fast. Now, of course, it was their karma. It's not our karma. We have to be here. And at the end of life, if you've ever done a death watch and sat with someone dying, you're just waiting for that last breath, that last exhalation, which is not followed by an inhalation. So being the son of the wind god, Bhima is the vitality, um, the vitality of the breath. And it's also, Bhima is considered to be righteousness supported by strength. And that's a very important quality of the heart because, um, because sometimes we can be, people talk about being very much in the heart, but if you're in the heart and it's not supported by strength, often the feelings of the heart can mislead you greatly. And you see lots of people who are um, wishy-washy in their spiritual life or airy-fairy, all these different words that people use that mean that it all sounds good, but there's no strength behind it. Because if there's no power, then Duryodhana will just wipe you off the battlefield because it's not, we're not just sitting by ourselves. We're engaged in this war. And then Arjuna is the power of self-control, and he represents the third chakra. This is the personal will. And the, the placement of Arjuna right in the center is key to understanding, because as the battle progresses, over and over it's repeatedly said that the battle entirely depends on Arjuna. And if you're just reading it as a story, you think, well, that's kind of insulting to Bhima and the rest of the boys, isn't it? I mean, they all had a lot of power. Why would it just be dependent on Arjuna? Well, because Arjuna is, one, he's personal will, he's self-control, he's the capacity not only to have energy, but to direct that energy for the righteous cause. Also, because Arjuna is right in the middle between the two lower and the two upper chakras, whichever way Arjuna goes, all the chakras will go with him. So, of course, all the Pandavas brothers are righteous because every chakra has its positive um, aspect, merely because they are lower chakras, that, that just means that they're inclined in a certain direction, but every chakra is positive when rightly directed. So the upper chakras can go downward, and the lower chakras can come upward. It just depends on what Arjuna does, on whether or not we have self-mastery, and whether we use that in the service of the righteous battle. So Arjuna is key. The third chakra is key. and. the the willingness, and this is the whole story of the Bhagavad Gita, when Arjuna doesn't want to fight, you see, the battle is lost. Because if Arjuna doesn't pick up his sword and do battle with these opposing forces, whether the external soldiers or the inner enemies, no hope. Because without self-control, everything is lost. So that's what Arjuna represents. And Sahadev and Nakula are the lower two chakras, and they are the yamas and the niyamas, okay? Nakula is the niyamas, which is the power to obey good rules, and Sahadeva is the yamas, which is the power to stay away from evil. No, it's it's interesting because we don't have to create goodness, we just have to stay away from evil. And that's what he has the power to do. He just, if you don't do the wrong thing, what's left is the right thing, because we are divine by nature, and uh, we just get confused. And they were said to be, you know, the most handsome men in the world and beautiful beyond uh, imagination of expectancy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the practice of the yamas and the niyamas um, creates this this tremendous magnetism and this tremendous beauty, and this tremendous ability to influence the world for good. And that's what they represent. Um, and because they have a different mother, let me see if I can speak to that for a moment. No, I think I'd better leave that because I'm not really quite sure what I would say. Okay. But the fact that they have a different mother because they're the lower two chakras, the upper three chakras, the lower two chakras, there's a slightly different um, possibility there. But I'm not going to be able to explain it well, so I'm sorry I said it at all. But I did. I'll have to look it up for next week. Okay. Now. At the, is all of that clear? Do we have any questions or thoughts? We'll revisit that repeatedly, but I just wanted to give you an idea. Uh, yes? Yeah. Did you explain about the, the second one? No, I said I brought it up and shouldn't have. <laughs> but I, I have to review so I can say it more accurately, because I realize it was not in my memory. Now, just as the Pandavas are created through these incantations and the intercession of these great gods. When Duryodhana was born, King Material Desire, he's born to his father, um, um, Dhritarashtra. Dhritarashtra is the, the, the blind mind. And when the mind is blinded, it gets sucked into the material world. It doesn't have clear sight at all. So Duryodhana is the king of material desires. That's how Master always calls him. And on the day he was born, there were evil omens everywhere. That there was nothing auspicious about the birth of this because when our materialistic desires come into manifestation, it bodes ill for everyone. It's going to be the destruction of our inner kingdom. And so, when he was born, um, everyone told Dhritarashtra that this son was so, the aspects on his nature were so bad that he ought to drown him at birth. And Um, Dhritarashtra was always supported by Vidura. Vidura is wisdom, and Vidura is always talking to Dhritarashtra. Dhritarashtra's mind is blind, but he keeps consulting with Vidura, who represents pure wisdom, and pure wisdom is always trying to help Dhritarashtra, but he usually doesn't listen. And Vidura, because he has this uh, capacity to see and understand, he says, your son is going to cause the destruction, they say, of the whole world. Of course, you see, this is also... Dwapara Yuga going into Kali Yuga. So in a very real sense, the world that they had all been living in all this time is actually going to be destroyed. Just as, in reverse, Kali Yuga going into Dwapara, which is what we're doing now, and we're rejoicing, we meaning um, the self-realizationists of this world, the Dwapara Yuga in tune sort of people, we're delighted that the world around us is being destroyed. I mean, maybe masters tell us it may be destroyed almost literally if some of those predictions of cataclysms and you know bombs and wars happen. But many people feel already that the world is being destroyed because all of the forms are cracking. You know, the fundamental religionists are fighting so hard because they they recognize that there's an overwhelming threat to the world as they know it. We're going in a positive direction from our point of view, but they don't feel that way. But they sense that there is this clashing of worlds. So when uh, Vidura tells uh, Dhritarashtra that your son is going to cause the destruction of the whole world, he's right, because Krishna has come in to usher in a new age. And he suggests, too, that he... Um, should kill him while he's a baby. But the blind mind is simply not capable of surrendering his desires and obliterating them while they're small. And this is what's being said to us. You kill them while they're small. You can see where these are going, and while you still have the power, just get rid of them. Um, Wisdom tells us to do that. The blind mind says, but, you know, maybe it won't turn out that way, and all the different ways that we... Um, make our lives miserable, and then are so surprised by the consequences of our own actions. How did this ever happen, we say. In time, Dhritarashtra becomes the father of 101 sons and one daughter. Um, it's probably not literal, but what they're talking about is the proliferation of material desires and all the different, um, all the different negative realities that lack of understanding produces. It just proliferates, one after another. So that's why he had so many. And the Pandavas, the virtues are small, because virtues are very simple. When you get clo- the closer you are to God, the simpler things get. The farther you are out into the duality, the more complicated it is. So the Pandavas grow up in the forest. Now there's five sturdy sons, and he has nothing more to complain about. And 15 years pass. 16 years pass. And then one beautiful spring day. You know, the birds are singing, the flowers are beautiful, the sun is shining, the air is warm and fragrant, and Pandu just forgets. You know how it is? We remember for a while and then we think maybe it's not true. Have, have we ever had that experience? <laughs> you know? We get, we, something happens to us, we're solid, we understand, we're really disciplined for a long time, and then, you know, we just forget. So Pandu forgets. And he sees his beautiful wife, Madri, and he's overcome with desire, and she does everything she can to persuade him that this is a really bad idea, but she's unable to persuade him, and as soon as he embraces her, just as the Rishi said, that's the end of him, dead. Like that. Of course... Madri is devastated, Kunti is devastated, because in the context in which they live, the wife follows the husband. And both women um, want to throw themselves on the funeral pyre, but Madri persuades Kunti first that she was the cause of their husband's death, and therefore it's her right and duty to put herself on the funeral pyre. Who knows whether women putting themselves on funeral pyres ever really happened It's so barbaric, and it's just so unspeakably horrible, it's hard to imagine that any civilized society would allow it. And so much of the rest of the society is so civilized and so respectful that it's probably not really a a true tradition. But anyway, there we have it. So um, Madre persuades Kunti that we can't leave our sons motherless. So if I go, you must stay. And so she agrees. And so, Pandu, the ceremonies are carried out. Madri follows him into the astral world, into the next world. And Kunti now has five sons and no husband. So all the rishis in the forest say, well, there's only one thing for you to do. You need to go back to the palace. Back to Hastinapura is the name of the town. So, now they come back. And of course, in the meantime, Duryodhana has been well, he's been the favored son, the only son, the eldest son, as far as anyone was concerned. There were rumors of his cousins out there in the forest. He'd heard about them, but there were no reality to him. He was the, was the, I want to keep wanting to say top dog. He was the alpha dog in the whole situation there. And then all of a sudden, and there's no email, and there's no internet, so it wasn't as if Kunti and her sons could have told Ritarashtra, oh, expect us, you know, on the nine o'clock train or something like that. They just, escorted by the rishis, suddenly show up in the town. And, of course, Kunti is radiantly beautiful, and, you know, this divine loving mother, she's a very noble person, and there are these five beautiful young men who are all half divine in their nature, and they all start coming into this town, and the town knows you know, of their king, Pandu, and they realize these are their royal family. And, of course, um, everyone comes out to see them. And and the town rejoices, and everyone rejoices except Duryodhana, who can see what this means, and Dhritarashtra, too. Um, and then they're just grief-stricken to hear that Pandu has died, and here we are again. And so um, Bhishma really sees you know, what again, what the responsibility he's going to have. So, just a moment. So, Ambalika and Ambika and Satyavati, remember all the queens who, in various ways, gave birth to all these people one way or another, they're just really devastated to hear that Pandu has died. And uh, they arrange to have a royal mourning ceremony and Biasa comes to preside because that's what he does when these things happen. And afterwards, he goes to his mother, who is Satyavati, and he says, look, if you think things are bad now, they're going to get a whole lot worse. He says the conflict between these two branches of one family is just going to flare up, and it's going to be a devastation. And he says to, to her, he says, you don't really want to witness it. So there's one more element that we get to play out every so often, which is really a beautiful part of this, which is Satyavati, Ambika, and Ambalika, all these queen mothers, they just say, we've had enough. And at the end of life, it's quite permissible, in fact, it's quite expected, that you simply leave behind the life you've been living, you go off into the forest, you live as a renunciate, you live simply, and you prepare for the transition into the next life. I mean, it's it's so not the way we think in the West. You know, the ideal in the West is to die with all your family around you, in your home, with all your beautiful possessions, and you just kind of hold on to the very last second to all those identities, and then maybe finally you just let go when you really can't breathe anymore. But the image that's presented in these epics is that at a certain point, it's just that part of my life is over because you're going to have to let go of it at death anyway. And you want when you leave this world, to go upward into the spirit and not have all those things clinging to your consciousness. So it's really quite noble and really very practical. um, If you have attachments to break, to help yourself to break them in the right way. So they just leave. And uh, when Satyavati speaks to Bhishma and says, you know, we're going off to the forest, because Vyasa tells us that things are going to get much worse. Bhishma, who's never really been so pleased to be here in the first place, says, well, that's it for me too. You know, I have this boon that the, the mitigating condition of this terrible vow I've taken is that at any point I can end my own life and I think I'm done too. But then Satyavati says essentially, well, what gives me the confidence to leave is the knowledge that you're here. And one more time, the mother's right and the son's obedience to the mother takes precedence over all other considerations. This is something that I have observed in modern times that uh, Indian mothers who have this power use it pretty freely. And um, it's something so alien to the way the Americans think because we're so utterly individualistic that it, it really requires from our side entering into a reality other than our own, to appreciate uh, the force of a mother's word or a father's word on their children, and how difficult it can be for children to actually just turn their backs on what their parents are asking of them. In America, I can't say that people do it lightly, but they certainly do it a lot more casually than I've seen it done there. But the epics, you see, support this. It... In fact, truthfully, it does not always produce the best spiritual result. produces a more stable society, perhaps. But, as Swami Kriyananda put it, I'm just going to contradict the Baha here at my peril. But one of the little stories that I put into my book about Swamiji was Swami asked a certain thing of this young man, and he said, oh, if I did that, my mother would be so disappointed. And Swami's response says, sooner or later we all must be, he put it, be prepared to disappoint our mothers, you know that merely because they gave us life, even merely because they sacrificed a great deal, which no child, until that child is a parent, him or herself, understands how much parents have to sacrifice for their children, they still don't own you. And if their requests of you are really to hold you back spiritually, then it becomes a lower duty. Very difficult teaching very difficult. And the, and the epics really often side with the mother. So, so Bhishma is stuck. You have to stay and guide the house. So the Pandavas now begin their life in court as, as princes. Until now they've lived with rishis, and now they become the princes. And Duryodhana and his brothers are suddenly forced to share their position. And even worse, Yudhishthira is older and that, which would belong to Duryodhana up till now, Duryodhana was um, king material desire, had complete uh, power over the kingdom. If we think of the kingdom as being our own selves, well, you know, he, we were worldly. We just followed our own desires and we had all the power. And then suddenly the force of spiritual reality enters in of power uh, uh, strengthened by righteousness of self-control, of the yamas and the niyamas, of this deep spiritual calmness. And all of a sudden, material desire is being, he he can't just have his way because these other forces are now living right next to him. And as you can well imagine, he doesn't like it. And it's not very hard to um, see why he doesn't. And we're, we're laying the groundwork for the ultimate clash between these two forces. Now, they, just to make the story more interesting, they talk about the fact that Bhima, because he had so much force and because he was such a vital and excitable young man, was often a bully and somewhat careless with his strength. And he and Duryodhana were exactly equal, and so they began to have this terrible conflict at all times. And Duryodhana developed a particular hatred of Bhima with his righteous strength, It was His his strength in righteousness was an uh, anathema to Duryodhana's materialistic desires. So Duryodhana sees clearly that um, this is not going to work. And he starts trying to think of a way simply to get rid of Bhima. He sort of feels, if I can get rid of Bhima, because he's the one who's right there uh, attacking him all the time. So he comes up with this nefarious plot, just boldly, because material desire really has no scruples. It, it feels that this is an enemy and it's spoiling my life. So all the cousins go out for a picnic. And Duryodhana puts on a great show of affection for his cousin. And just before they're about to leave from the, the river bank where they've been having this picnic, he invites Bhima in and he feeds him all this lavish food. You know, material desire tries to act like it's really the friend of spirit, isn't it? You know, it's just like, well, God wants me to have nice things, don't you agree? Someone actually said that to me. I think God wants me to have nice things. I was speechless, but later I thought, why? Why would he want you to have nice things? What she was really saying was, you know, I want to have nice things, and I I think that God doesn't mind. (laughs) You might say he doesn't mind, but it's really not his plan for us. So material desire tries to woo Bima and he feeds him all this food and acts like his friend. But actually he's poisoned the food because those material desires poison our spiritual joy. They just do. So they poison Bhima. and then he and his brothers wrap Bima up in vines and tie him up and then they go to the river and they have this special place in the river where they plant a lot of sharp sticks and then they throw Bhima in. He's tied up He's unconscious from the poison, and we, they throw him onto what they hope is the, the stakes. And then they innocently just gather up all their things, and everybody goes back to Hastinapura. And the Pandavas notice that Bhima's not with them, but they just imagine that he must be somewhere else in the group, or has gone ahead, and he doesn't really what, know what to do. But Kunti, with a mother's instinct, has this feeling that something terrible has happened to Bhima, and she consults Vidura. Who's all wise, and he says, In fact, you know, there is a plot, but I assure you Bhima will be fine. So now um, Kunti, with a mother's love, has to trust in the wisdom of Vidura, and he says, Don't betray what you know. Now, meanwhile, here's the story of Bhima. Somehow or another, even though he was tied up and he was poisoned, he was thrown into the river and he managed miraculously to fall between the sharp sticks. And it was also known that at that place in the river, there were lots of poisonous snakes. So all the poisonous snakes rush out to where Bhima is and they start biting him. And in some extraordinary way, one poison neutralizes the other. And so now Bhima is very strong And he begins to struggle against his uh, bondages, uh, uh, what do we call them, bonds. And he's he's so powerful that the snakes are very impressed. And the king of the snakes comes and takes him over (laughs) to his palace. And so then Bima spends eight days with the the snake king. This is the part that's all put in to please the children, I'm sure. You know, the storyteller finds this, this works well, and I'm sure it also has some significance of some kind or another. And meanwhile, the Pandavas, you know, are terrified because Bhima, eight days are passing and Bhima has not shown up. And Duryodhana is acting like he's so distressed and he doesn't know what's happened, but of course he knows exactly what's happened. The Pandavas have to pretend that they don't know what Duryodhana is doing. It's a very stressful time, and for them it's a challenge to have faith in what Vidura has said. But after eight days um, of consorting with snakes underwater. Um, they, they are so pleased with Bima that they give him all these potions and magic powers and so he comes out of the water and walks back into town and when he arrives he's not only not dead but he's more powerful than ever. And so sometimes when King Material Desire you know, tries to attack our spiritual aspiration and our righteousness at first it may seem like we're defeated But if we persevere, you see, we actually become stronger from it. It's a very obvious story, but in fact, that is exactly what happens um, if we don't give up. So now, Duryodhana is just heartbroken to see that his plot didn't work. And also now, his even though nobody speaks of it, that Duryodhana knows that all the Pandavas know how evil his intentions are. So Duryodhana realizes that he's going to have to attack this on a very different level and he gets his uncle, Sakuni, uh, who we will meet more powerfully later and they begin to seriously plot how they're going to deal with this because you see, material desire sees that just a, a frontal assault, we're just not going to be able to poison these people out of existence. They're not going to go away. We're going to have to be much more subtle. So he calls his evil uncle, Um, to begin to plot with him. His evil uncle is very committed. Let me sort of say what what he represents. It's really interesting here. Um, The evil uncle... Let me just get the notes exactly right. Just a second. The evil uncle represents the power of... I just want to say it right because it's really interesting. It's the power of the sense of I... It's, it's, it's the... Oh, rats. Let me just find it properly here. Excuse me. Oh, it's probably because it's behind me. He represents attachment to the delusion of I. That's what I, how I wanted to say it exactly right. Um, the mind becomes darkened because of our attachment to the sense of I. So, King Material Desire, naturally, and Sakuni are natural partners in this. But we become confused when we are thinking about ourselves. And, you know, much more subtly, it's not merely that we're thinking about ourselves or are self-centered, but there's this actual power that causes us to be continually attached to the concept of I. The ego, you might call it, but it's even more subtle than that. Just the belief that I am a separate entity, that I am entitled to a certain respect and certain privileges. And the more we think like that, the more confused we get. But also, uh, we, then we become, as they say, unable to perceive truth, unable to tell reality. And when you think of it in just your normal life, attachment to our own person and ourself, causes us to misperceive other people's intentions causes us to misperceive ourselves, to not actually notice, for example, the impact of our own actions. Because we're so attached to ourself, we don't even, it doesn't even occur to, occur to us that everybody else isn't just on my wavelength, you know? Uh, and our mind becomes darkened. Um, and it, it, it also, Sakuni also represents the power to bewilder the enemy. And the attachment to the sense of I um, is a bewildering force, and the forces of spirituality do get confused in the presence of Sakuni. And that's what we see when Sakuni initiates a, 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 an ill-fated game of dice, and the Pandavas really fall for it. And even in the story as you read it, even just in the book, you feel, Don't do it, you Yudhisthira, don't do it! <laughs> and you can't really understand why he's doing it, but Sakuni is in charge. And that attachment to the sense of I bewilders the mind, and you can't tell what you're doing anymore. So Duryodhana, his simple king of desire, realizes that he needs something more subtle. And so he gets Sakuni, and they start plotting together about how they're really, they have to defeat these righteous cousins because otherwise their day is over and they're not willing to give up. Let's take a short break and then we'll go on from there. Okay. People have asked me which copies of the Mahabharata I like. I'm sure there are many copies, but these are the ones that I have enjoyed the most. This one is by Raja Gopal Acharya, which I believe you said he was the next president of India. Is that what you... First president of India. This is a very good book. He's written it, you can tell he's written it for a young audience. It's not a children's book by any means, but it's very dear because you can see... How passionately he loves India and how he wants the young people to embrace um, the traditions that make India what it truly is and because it's written for young people it's very engaging but it doesn't you don't feel like you're reading a children's book by any means Um, and this is the other one I like the Mahabharata it's by Kamala Subramunyam this one looks a whole lot bigger than this one but it's deceptive the paper is thinner and the print is closer here so they're not really as different as they look most of what's in this book is in this book, um, but there are a few incidents, there are few stories that you don't find in the smaller one that are in the bigger one. Paradoxically, the writing is better in this one. So really, there's no choice. You have to read them both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly a hardship duty. So, Okay. And it, there may be others, but of the ones that I've ever put my hands on and cast my eyes over, those are the two that I end up keeping. They're, they're readily, these books are readily available. You know, Amazon.com, any store that sells them, East, West, we might even have them here. Yeah. They're not obscure. Okay, now, while, while Duryodhana is plotting with Sakuni to figure out how to really get rid of the Pandava brothers, we're just all going to leave them there and we're going to do some backstories over here to help explain other things that are going to happen. One of the characters who will come into the story and be extremely important, is Dronacharya, Drona. And um, Dronacharya represents habit. He represents samskars. He represents everything that we already are and all that force and how it influences us. And eventually we find that habit sides with material desire. Um, he, he, He may not want to, but he does. And for complex reasons of the way the plot unfolds, habit ends up fighting on the side of Duryodhana. So we'll start with Drona. Drona was um, a great archer and a great teacher of archery. He was the greatest teacher of all, and eventually he becomes the 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 guru in the sense of he teaches both the Kauravas and the Pandavas the art of war. And so all of the both sides of the equation. Uh, become his pupils. Um, because habit influences both our positive and our negative qualities, both our materialistic and our spiritual. We have samskars of both kinds. And so Drona, the force of habit, um, influences both sides. Um, the story of Drona is this, that Drona was the son of a, a, a Brahmin teacher, and there was a king named Drupada. And he, he was destined to inherit wealth and power in the kingdom, so his father wisely realized that his son needed to be trained you know, by a wise Brahmin in an ashram. So the king Drupada came to live in the ashram home where Drona had been born. And the king, of course, was wealthy and powerful, and Drona was just the son of the king's teacher, but they were just boys together. And as often happens, between children, all the subsequent differences of caste and position and power and wealth just get wiped out in the enthusiasm of children. And they play together like equals. And Drupada was very extravagant in his friendship. And he said to Drona, You know, when I am king, uh, half of everything I have will belong to you. And uh, Drona was, of course, very happy to hear that. Um, Drona represents uh, dispassion and a distaste for material enjoyment. Uh, Not Drona, excuse me, Drupada. Drupada is a great character. Dispassion and a a, a disinclination for material things. So it would be natural that Drupada would say to Drona, you know, half of what I have, you can have, because he would have had that spirit. That would be his nature. Well, they both grew up, and Drupada eventually inherited the kingdom and became that powerful king he was destined to be. And Drona was uh, married, and he fathered a son. His son's name is Aswatama. And Aswatama represents latent desires, desires that are just sort of under there. Habit gives uh, birth to more desires. You know, that they're not quite expressed yet, but they're waiting to be expressed all of the things within us that we might do, if we ever give ourselves a chance to do, okay? So, um, Drona became inspired to become a great archer, and he went away to train with Bhargava, who is this man who appears through the story, because he's the greatest archer of all times, and uh, Drona learned everything that Bhargava had to teach him and became known as the greatest archer in the world. But when he came home after these years of training, he found that his wife and his son were nearly starving, that they just had nothing at all, that they had become completely impoverished. And Drona remembered the childhood promise of his friend Drupada and realized that, well, Drupada has inherited the kingdom, and now I just have to go and claim what is really mine. Now, they tell the story in two different ways. Sometimes they say that Drupada had become had lost his dispassion and become drunk with his power. And when Drona came in and asked him for half the kingdom as promised, Drupada thought, what is wrong with you? How can you imagine this? But a much more subtle explanation of this that Master gives in his Gita commentary is that at the beginning, you know, spiritual aspiration and our habits and our samskars can be friends. Um, That was Drona and Drupada. But when our samskars... Um, manifest a desire for material things, then our spiritual self and our habits cease to be friends. So as long as they were both in the ashram of their guru and they were operating in that same way, but when habit came and tried to claim all of those material things, then habit ceases to be a friend of ours, and we have to be, deal with him very harshly. So it wasn't that Drupada betrayed his word it's that when Drona actually, when habit really showed itself, when Samskars began to show themselves, dispassion realized that this is not my friend. I thought this man was my friend, but he is not my friend. Later on, we see that Drona actually wins back half the kingdom, but he wins the southern half, which is he wins the lower chakras, is how that's described. <laughs> and that's where you know the, our material desires fight against, where Arjuna is, and we have to pull them up and, Keep them where we want them to go. Okay, now, Drupada just cast Drona out, but Drona is enraged because they were boys together. They grew up together. This is the way our habits feel, don't they? But you know, I'm your friend. We we've, we've, we're, were children together. We've always been together. You've always been drinking. You've always been taking drugs. You've always been sensual in your interests. Why are you not like that anymore? And so Drona is just furious and he's determined that he's going to get back at Drupada. So he remembers that his brother-in-law works, uh, is, is, has a position with, in the, in the uh, court of Hastinapura, where Bhishma is and where the Pandavas and the Kauravas are. So he goes and he says, I'll go there and I'll use my influence with my brother-in-law to get a position. But he's very clever about how he does it. And he enters the city in such a way that the first people he meets are the Pandava brothers, and then they just tell this story of how the boys are playing with a ball, and the ball accidentally goes down a well, and they don't know how to get it out. And so Drona comes, and he performs an extraordinary feat of archery, and he, sends, he, he has a small ring, and he drops it into the well onto the ball, and then he sends an arrow through the ring, and so the point just barely goes into the ball without piercing it, And then he sends another arrow into that arrow and another and another and another until he's made this chain of arrows and he can pull the ball out of the well. And the boys, the young men, are so impressed with this. Who are you? He says, just go tell Bhishma what I've done. And so they go and describe what happened and Bhishma knows that Drona has come. He knows knows of him because his reputation is known. So Drona... Offers Bhishma, uh, Bhishma offers Drona a position. He says, Would you train all of these young men to be true kshatriyas? And Drona says, Yes, I will, on one condition. He said, I have been terribly wronged by King Drupada. And after I train these men to be warriors, I want them to help me get my revenge. So Bhishma thinks this is a fair deal because he feels like Drona has been wronged, and so they make the bargain. And then Drona begins to teach them. And he teaches them all the um, arts of war, all of them. But the one who really comes forward with tremendous ability is Arjuna. And he he brings his wife and his son, and Ashwatthama now grows up with Duryodhana and with Arjuna. And Arjuna represents self-control, and Duryodhana represents material desire, and Ashwatthama is latent desires. So even though Drona tries to influence his son because of the samskaras that move that way to be um, a crony of Arjuna, Ashwatam is much more interested in Duryodhana. But Drona becomes so impressed with Arjuna and his power that um, it's, it's clear that even he favors Arjuna even over his own son. But the story also makes it clear that this was no... Um, random affection on the part of Drona. It was because of Arjuna's powerful self-control and the ability that he had to accept the instructions, to practice what was asked, and to just you know, please his teacher by his extraordinary skill as an archer. Now, archery often represents meditation because you have the string is the straight string and the slightly raised chest is the way the bow is... is out like this. Swami Kriyananda's posture as a young man, from the side, he always looked exactly like a strung bow. Very straight back, chest slightly upraised, heart very open, and front of his body slightly curved forward. Um, interestingly, when you would look at him, you would realize that when he would move through life, his heart was the, was the most forward part of his anatomy. It's interesting because we sort of lead with whatever part works. When I, I know whenever I'm intent on something, I try to push At reality from the frontal lobe, (laughs) you know, just kind of not from the spiritual eye in that case, but with just the brain. And Swamiji would always go forward with the heart. So Arjuna, all 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 of this tremendous skill in archery, he has the samskars. Drona is helping him, and habit becomes his friend, because Drona is the teacher on both sides. Habit can be be your enemy. Habit can be your friend. He teaches both of them. Samskars can be your enemy. Samskars can be your friend of your spiritual aspiration. So Arjuna is clearly the favorite, but Drona's son becomes more and more of an ally because self-control is not at all attractive to latent desires. If you have latent desires, you don't want them to be controlled. You want them to be fulfilled. So naturally, Aswatthama is just, for some reason, he just doesn't like Arjuna. Wow, what a surprise. (laughs) Okay. Now... So we have that whole story going. Drona has it now established himself in the household in the household of both of all the princes. And, you know, Bhishma is the ego and habit has come to dwell and Bhishma recognizes habit as soon as it's described to him. They just go and describe what he's done and Bhishma immediately recognizes it because the ego knows itself. Oh yeah, these are my old tendencies. Here he is again. Welcome. Come to the come here and then help me with this new project which is to raise up all these other qualities. Ego is raising all these other qualities. All the positive and negative and habit, samskaras comes into play its role. Now, meanwhile, you remember the baby in the basket. And all the threads have to come together. So now we're going back to the baby in the basket. Um, The basket, not surprisingly, was found on the river. There was a, a very humble but sincere and god-loving man and his name was Atiratra Atiratra I suppose that's how it's pronounced something like that and his wife was Radha and they lived a, a humble life he was a chariot driver you know a, a very humble profession he was not a kshatriya he was not a powerful man he was a chariot driver and he had a loving wife and a, a humble happy existence except they were not blessed to have children and the, the society is such that childless couples are it's considered very sad if you don't have children. Every time I go to India, you know there's always, how many children do you have? No children. And then there's always this look of extreme sadness that comes over. people don't know what to do, and it's very hard for me to explain. That's a good thing. <laughs> it gets a little confusing um, because. Everybody likes to be fruitful and multiply. It's the, <laughs> it is not, by any means, the highest dharma, but that's what people seem to think is important. So everything is fine, except he has no children. And so he's by the river one day doing his spiritual practices, and he sees a, a, a shiny thing floating in the river. And he swims out to the middle of the river, and he finds this beautiful carved box with this beautiful piece of silk and wrapped in the silk. He sees this extraordinarily beautiful child, which you remember was born with a golden breastplate and golden earrings because he's the son of Surya, the sun god. And he's floating on the river, and the only thing that he can imagine is that this is a gift from God. So he pulls the the box out of the river and he takes it to his wife Radha, and they're overjoyed now to have a child. And so they raise him up with all respect and love. And he comes to be 16 years old, and 16 years old is considered to be manhood. And in Dwapara Yuga, in a stable society, there's a natural following. One generation follows after another. We don't have, because we're in a changing period of time right now in our world, from the predictable form of things into this age of energy, one of the characteristics of this is that one generation does not follow another. It mean, doesn't follow the example or the path of the, of the generation. I was in reading in a modern magazine, there was a family in India where there had been like five or ten generations, I don't know what the number was, but it was a big number, where the family had been itinerant storytellers. They had just gone from village to village and it was the family profession, and one generation after another was trained up in that. And now this man had five sons, and not one of them followed it. They all had gone to the city, and they were driving taxis and working in restaurants. And like you know, generations of lineage are being cut because it just doesn't even occur to people they're they're born for a completely different reality. But in the Dwapara Yuga age, ending, it was just expected that you would follow your father's profession. So um, he's called this boy is called Radeya. And he's called Radeya because he's the joy of his mother, Radha. And he also has the name Karna. And the name Karna means, you should know this, it means the desire to have happiness in this world. So Karna becomes a very interesting and complicated character. And he plays this fascinating role. And the quality that he represents becomes deeply significant as we go through it. Because it seems so innocent, doesn't it? The desire to be happy in this world. I mean, like, doesn't God want me to have nice things? You know, it just seems like it ought to work out. But as we see as Karna, as he is called, or Radeha, that's the same character, just it never quite comes together for him. Faith is always against that desire because it's not God intended that we seek our happiness in this world. And no matter how powerful and good he becomes, that fundamental aspect of his life it simply can't happen and as we see even from the beginning here he is he's the son of a god and a princess and yet he's raised in these very humble circumstances it just ought to work for him but it doesn't and so the desire to be happy in this world is something very subtle that we have to work with now he's 16 years old and his father wants to buy him a chariot and get him started in his own life. You know, next thing, with they'll arrange a marriage, and pretty soon, it'll all be just happening as it's meant to. And Radea is just he, he hes beside himself. He doesn't know what to do, and he goes to his mother, and he's so unhappy. And his mother, because he loves him, he sees his misery, and he—he says, "What?" Uh, she says, "What is wrong, my son?" And he says, "You know, I love my father. I love my mother." And father has bought me this chariot, he said, but I have no wish to be a chariot driver. He says, I have a burning desire to become a warrior. He said, why in my position, in, in the caste that I'm born into, why would I have such a burning desire to become a warrior? It's not my dharma, it's not my life. And Radea looks very sad. And before she speaks, she asks him a question. She says, many times, my son, I have heard you in the night having a conversation, seemingly in a dream. And he he says, I heard you speaking to someone. Who are you? Don't leave. Who are you speaking to? So Radea has never wanted to hurt his mother, so he's never told her this story. But he said all the years of his life he's been having this recurring dream in which a woman whose face he cannot quite see, but who seems to be sad, weeping with sadness, but emanating for him a great deal of love, leans over him. And he feels her presence, and he's uh, powerfully drawn to her presence, and he says, her garments are so rich, she must be a princess. And then he always says, who are you? Don't leave. Why do you come to me? But then she always, when he asks, she fades away. So Radea feels that she cannot keep the secret from her son any longer. Um, Rata says. She says to her son, even though we have raised you as our own child, you know, your father found you in a royal box wrapped in silk, and your desire to be a Kshatriya warrior is undoubtedly because that is really who you are. And she says, you know, from this day, you, you being my son has been the greatest joy of my life but I know from this day you have to go on and be who you really are. And she said, and I will always treasure in my heart the memory of having you in my household and raising you as my own. And he says, I don't know who this woman is who comes to me in my dreams, but she casts me upon the waters. She may have given birth to this body, but she is not my mother. You are my mother. And he said, always in my life, he said, whatever comes to me, you know and i will be a great and famous man but i will be famous as radea i will be your son and that is who i always will be but still she blesses him and sends him off so he hears about the power of drona and his first thought is that he will go to drona and he will be trained by him so he manages to find drona when no one else is around and he asks if he can become his pupil no Radeya has a marvelous you know, demeanor to him because he is royal and he is in fact the eldest Pandava brother. He's the firstborn of the mother. But Drona asks, what caste are you? Because only certain people could be trained in the art of war. It was an orderly society. and His caste is a Sudaputra, is what it's called. And it's a Brahmin and a Kshatriya together. I can't really express it more, but that's simply how it's written in the book. But he's not he's not of the right caste for Jonah to train him. And Jonah says, I'm sorry, I cannot train you. So he tries to go here and to go there, but he doesn't doesn't have the qualifications of birth. And no one will take him just as he is. And he begins to see, you see, the tragedy of his life is beginning to unfold. His desire is so obvious and seems he's willing to work for it, but nothing supports him to do it. So finally... Bhargava whom everybody goes to Bhargava for some reason and I'm sure there is a reason that's known but it we wouldn't go there even if I knew it he hates kshatriyas and he's spent all his time going around the world killing kshatriyas for which I'm sure has some symbolic reason that I don't know but I'm not going to even try to find out and uh, he uh, he he trains brahmins to be warriors so Radeya thinks, well, I'm half Brahmin, I'm half Kshatriya, I'll just tell him I'm a Brahmin. Because he hates Kshatriyas, and if he thinks I'm a Brahmin, then it'll be fine. So Bhargava says, fine. So he feels a little concerned because he's starting out with a slight untruth, but he makes up for it with the passionate force and power with which he embraces the training. And he learns everything his guru wants him to learn, and he becomes the absolute pride of his guru because he's so powerful and years pass and radea thinks oh really now it's finally going to work you know I want to be happy in this world and look it's really going to work for me I'm being trained and I've got overcome my bad start and it's all going to be just right isn't that how it is you know we think we've outrun it we're just like whatever it was it's over now now everything's going to be fine you know I was uh, we put out we do bad things and then we think that they'll never catch up with us. You know, where did you think the energy would go? It stays with us always. So the day comes after his guru has just praised him and everything looks right. And his guru says, oh, I'm a little tired. He said, fetch, fetch me a pillow from the, from the ashram house and I would like to rest. And Radeya says, "No, Guruji, just use my, my lap as your pillow. So he sits with his legs crossed, and the guru stretches himself out and puts his head in his, on his thigh. And, you know, Radea is in bliss because he's pleased his guru, and his guru is resting with his head in his lap. But he's still a little worried about the fact that all of this started with a slight untruth, which is a serious problem. And so while his guru is sleeping, some fierce insect uh, uh, attaches itself to Radea's leg, and they describe it as a burrowing insect. And the insect begins to burrow into his leg with such force that he begins to bleed. But he, he holds himself absolutely motionless because he doesn't want to disturb his guru's sleep. But finally there's enough blood flowing that the blood flows onto Bhargavan It wakes him up. And he says, you know, what is this? And he sees that there's this insect that's been burrowing into the leg of his disciple. And all of a sudden he says, No brahmin could withstand that kind of pain. You must have been telling me an untruth. Only a kshatriya, whom he hates, could do that. (laughs) And so he became so angry that Bhargava said to Radeya, you have learned all of these great powers and I can't take them back now. You know, I would never have given to you had I known but now you already have them. But he, he gathered up his tapasya and in his anger, he cursed him. And he said, in the moment when you most want the most powerful um, astras, they call them, that you have against your fiercest enemy, you will not be able to remember. And Radea throws himself on the mercy of his guru, but his guru will not relent. So he has all this power, he has all this skill, he will always be successful except in the final moment. And then suddenly he will not be able to bring it to the conclusion that he wants. He doesn't even know what that final moment will be, but his guru has promised him that it won't quite work out. You know, because his essential quality is based on a false expectation, so it can't work out. But yet, it almost will because that's the way of the world. It's not black and white, is it? So he was forced out of his guru's ashram, and he was just beside himself, and he was weeping and distressed, and he went down by the sea, and he was hunting, because, of course, he was trained to do that, and he saw an animal there, and he just shot it, and it fell dead. But then he realized that in his confusion... It was not a deer that he had shot, but it was the cow of a Brahmin. And, of course, this Brahmin was very angry. And Rodeo tried to explain that it had been a harmless accident accident, and could he replace it, what could he do, but the Brahmin would have none of it, and he cursed him. (laughs) And he said, at at, um, the moment when you are fighting again, your deadliest enemy, when you need all your power, He said, your chariot wheel will become stuck in the mud and just as helpless as this poor cow was when you killed it, you will become absolutely helpless and will be killed in the same way. At which point Rodea said, the fates are against me. He said, there's nothing, obviously nothing I can do. I just must live my life as honorably as I can and let the fates take their course. So Radeya is telling us how we deal with things that happen to us. There's no point in worrying about it anymore. I'll just do my best in the face of this. They're also telling us that bad things often come in groups. (laughs) That once things start not going well for you, they often get worse. So now Drona is training all of the Pandavas and the Kauravas. Radeya has made himself powerful, and ready to take his place in the world. He's been released from his guru's ashram, and now all the forces are coming together. But not tonight. (laughs) Okay, so that's the end for tonight. (laughs) And we won't meet now for two weeks, so you won't know what happens. Unless, of course, you read these books. I'll also pass out to you, which I didn't want to pass out before. This is a list. This is thanks to Gandev. This is the list of all the many of the characters and their qualities as far as as far as they are known. if If somebody's not listed here, and I'm just trusting Gyandev on this one, if they were if they were available to know, he probably would have written it. So there it is. This is rather old, though, so maybe he has new ones since then. So anybody, you can pick these up. And two weeks um, cessation. Because I'll be up at the village working on the filming of the last round of Cities of Light. And in your spare moments, please pray for me because it's, there's a lot that has to come together in the next 14 days. And sometimes I think it'll work easily and sometimes I feel like the fates are against me. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cursed by any Rishis, though, so it's not a problem. <laughs> All right. So we actually three weeks
1: tonight.
0: That's actually how you would say it. You're saying it exactly correctly. Very good. Okay. We'll meet for this purpose three weeks from tonight. I'll probably schedule... I'll come home on a Wednesday or Thursday, and I'll probably schedule for that Saturday. I have to... Maybe you can remember? To have a satsang and just give everybody all the news about the movie, because it was... That was so much fun last time. Okay. So that will be the end of all the movies. Yeah. Well, no, that'll be the end of the filming. Yeah. Then they're still editing and so on, but... It's done by the director. The process is the director does the first, the director's cut, and then everybody looks at it after that. I'll, I'll be in... Um, I'm going to India in January, but I'll go to Los Angeles first for about four days and then go to India after that. Okay.